Hello, everyone, and good evening. I want to say welcome to another edition of Monday Musings with RC, where I tell you what's been going on in the black and brown community, or I give you information with one of my guests to talk about how to positively impact our communities. So today I am joined by a wonderful guest, Tanya Lovelace. Welcome, Tanya. How are you? Oh, I'm great and grateful to be here. And thank you so much for having me. No problem. So I want to start by telling people how I came to know you. It's interesting, actually, because um, there is a, another person named Enina J. And um, I've known her for years. And um, I was scrolling through. She is one of the most prolific writers I know. I, I cannot keep up at all. So I try to go on her Facebook and um, keep track of her writings. And she had reposted an interview, an interview you did, I believe, with domesticviolence.org. And yeah. that interview, um, I, I just read that article and I was like, this is a sister I need to know. I don't read about a lot of people who um, talk about intersectionality. They may have that as a platform, but that's usually not kind of what's talked about. That term isn't used to introduce them. And I'm all about intersectionality. That is my thing, so to speak. So I read the article and reached out and I thought, oh, she's probably so busy. There is no possible way I'll be able to connect with her. It'll be next month before, and I'm sorry here, I'm sharing on my page right now. Um, I said, there's probably no chance that I'll be able to connect with her for a month. So I really appreciate you reaching out to me and us having that wonderful conversation that we did have a little while ago. Yes. Um, so today we're gonna talk about domestic violence in the black community. We're talking about intersectionality. And I always like to give my audience some definitions but I know that this is challenging for some people. A lot of people in the Black community um, are hesitant to speak openly about domestic violence. Um, so we're dealing right now with a lot of things going on with the race, and already that's challenging. Then when you add on top of that domestic violence, and then you add on top of that sexuality, sexual orientation, um, I think people tend to cringe a little bit, and they're unsure as to whether or not that conversation is for them. So one of the first things I want to do is formally introduce you. I like to just give people a little bit about what's in store in the conversation and then pull back a moment and let everybody know that Tanya Lovelace is a global intersectional thought leader with 35 years of experience as a community organizer and movement maker working to end violence against all genders and communities. Tanya is an independent consulting um, consultant and works with helping people in terms of coaching, technical assistance, and training for not only individuals, but organizations and systems seeking social, political, and professional transformation. Welcome again. I'd like to jump right in. Yeah, well, let's so, do it. How did you get started in your work as a global intersectional thought leader? Well, first, since you gave um a nice intro about how you came across uh, me. I just wanna um, give a little shout out to our sister, Emina J, because she's so amazing. So I just wanna give her a shout out. Um, we are both in a book um, that is written by, that is uh, pulled together by um, 
our sister Aisha Shahira Simmons, which is Love with Accountability. We mm -hmm. each wrote a chapter there and I wrote about um, my child sexual assault. And so the book is digging up the roots of child sexual assault. And so I'm excited um, to let folks know about that. And it was wonderful meeting with you. And I feel like we are like minds and spirits. So I'm excited to be here. Sure. And so I just, I think it's important for me to just give a little bit of a, it's just clarity about who I am. And so I am a black cisgender heterosexual um, woman. I am a um, woman identified person. I am a Southern born, descendant of slaves, military kid, project kid, you know, survivor of child sexual assault, child abuse, teen dating violence, bullying, and domestic violence. Um, and um, I got into this work in 1995, uh, where I was working at a shelter in Ohio, in Dayton, Ohio. And uh, I believe I started the same day that the OJ verdict came out. Oh, wow. And so my master's in Black Studies and my master's in Women's Studies um, all sort of congealed together in that moment. Right. And I began to do work and started to really put out into um, the local arena, this idea of agency as plantation, and just really talking about these different pieces about how, um, you know, caricatures and issues um, that still in the historical, tra historical trauma and historical sort of presence um, mm -hmm. of slavery will, is always there and is always in the backdrop of how sexual assault and domestic violence happen to us today. Right. And so um, all of it came together. And so I've been in this field now for 25 years and that's kind of how I stumbled into it and have just been really dedicated to ending violence against uh, women and their families um, and against all genders, sexualities and communities. Awesome. Now, do you feel like you have uh, more of a connection to this work because you're a survivor or do you feel like, um, you would have stumbled into this work. It was your calling no matter what. So I say stumbled, I use that phrase because when I was um, at that YWCA table, when I, was, when I found the shelter um, you know, advertisement in the newspaper, you know, at the time I wasn't really talking about being a child sexual assault survivor. It wasn't even, it wasn't, it wasn't primary in my work. And at the time, frankly, I was not a sur survivor of domestic violence. I became a survivor of domestic violence within the past five years. And the very work that I do ended up saving my life. The very people that I build and do this work with ended up saving my life. And so that's really how that happened. And so, no, I didn't get into this from that perspective. Being right. in this work really led me to understand the various survivor experiences that I had had with child abuse, with, um, with child sexual assault, with teen dating violence, and really helped to orient even the bullying experience that I had. Um, and how, um, and then, then the domestic violence came later in life. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you for sharing that. I, I know this is the work that you do, but that doesn't mean that you want to share all of your personal business. So I always like yeah. to make sure that I'm mindful of that. So every survivor has their own story and their right to share their story or not to share their story. So I appreciate you sharing with us. Um, and I'm an example that it can happen to anybody, right? At any right. time, because at the time when I was running, um, at the time that this happened, here I am running a national 
organization addressing domestic violence and, and other forms of violence. And so right. it can happen. Right. I, sometimes we don't see it coming. Now, you do a lot of work on intersectionality, and I would like for you to define for the viewers here what intersectionality is. Well, it would be really great. I would love to have uh, my slides up Yes, there. which slide? Let's go with the first one. Well, in this case, it would be slide two. All right, we'll go ahead. I think I just shared and then stopped sharing for some reason. You see the screen? I do. Okay. And then if you could just go to, yeah. And uh, because I don't have my glasses with me, can you enlarge that for me? Yes. Slideshow. Yes, there we go. Thank you. So I can really read what we have here. <laughs> and so intersectionality, I just have a number of different um, sort of statements that really speaks to what intersectionality is. So it begins with the recognition that we all have multiple and layered identities. And then what it does, and I think this is the confusion that people have, because they think that intersectionality really just means having, you know, having multiple identities. But really, you have to go a step further and you understand then that intersectionality then is intended to center those at the deepest of the intersections and margins of identity. And so what we're really talking about in our case, you know, for example, is, you know, black women, then we're really looking at the intersections of race and we're looking at the intersections of being women and we're looking at the intersections then of other identities that we may have that places us at the margins and intersectionality decenters single issue approaches, mm -hmm. it decenters privilege, it assumes that those at the margins can represent on behalf of identity groups that are not hybrid. And what that means then is, um, what that means then is, if we're talking about women, if we're talking about, um, you know, cis or trans women, if we're talking about, um, you know, any community um, at the margins, then those folks at those margins can also then speak for those communities. And so, mm -hmm. in other words, you know, they can be the voice in that moment. And I think often we are attached or an add-on, but if you're having a conversation about uh, women, then black women can speak on that issue. Right. Um, and it's not intended to be that, you know, for example, that white women would speak and then I would be an add-on. Like I can actually represent and speak to those communities in those moments. Um, and then it encourages all to self-identify and to hold understanding about where we are positioned um, in community. And it, and, and it challenges those with layers of privilege to self-locate and to no longer uphold implicit identity. And so implicitness meaning that just even by being silent and not speaking to intersections is being implicit, well, is being sort of um, complicit, but also implicit identity, meaning they don't have to speak to who they are, but we do, right? And so it's important for them, for those who sit with privilege to speak to and identify their experience and identify their identities, 
um, because the implicitness would be then that those of us on the margins are constantly identifying and those who are not sitting in those margins are seriously sitting there and not having to show up in that way. And the, the idea would be that we all need to show up and identify who we are and where we sit. Right, um, right. And then it sets a clear pri priority to end patriarchy, Eurocentricity, capitalism, heterosexism, transphobia, yeah. all those issues simultaneously, yeah. simultaneously, right. right? I like that. I like that. I think that most of us probably think, well, we have to do one at a time because we it's too large of a task, right? Um, but what I like is this idea that this is, these are things we work on at the same time, and there is a term that embraces that. I think sometimes it takes, it takes the language for us to grab hold to it, unfortunately. Yes. We don't have um, the, the language to hold on to. We're a little bit kind of like untethered and we're not sure exactly what's happening, how to speak to other people about it and how to kind of organize around it. And so I do think it is important to have clear language and have clear understanding about the language that we speak. So I appreciate those definitions there. And then you brought up some terms that some of my viewers may not know. So for instance, you said cisgendered. And what does that mean? And so, uh, so I identify as a cisgender person, which means that, um, which means that my, um, that my uh, body parts, that my genitalia matches the way that I identify. And so um, I, and I, you know, and we typically just assign gender right up front based on genitalia. In my case, it actually, um, you know, connects, even though in many ways, I do believe that, um, you know, I operate in ways that are non-binary quite frankly, you know, quite, quite often. And, and, and that's another, I don't, I don't want to conflate that with folks who live every single day um, within an experience of being non-binary. And so I don't want to, I don't want to usurp, usurp that term. Right. Um, but I do want to say that, um, but, but for me, my genitalia matches my gender. Okay. Um, and, and I think that I, and that's where the cisgender comes from. Yes. Right. So I know there's a lot of terms that I often use and people say, I had no idea what you were talking about. And all I know is you keep saying these things about pronouns because I am yes. quick to say to someone, um, my preferred name is RC and I have no problem saying, please do not call me anything other than RC. And so sometimes people will, if I'm on the phone, they may wonder, and I can tell in their voice, they're like, hmm. Or some people will ask, so are you male or female? And um, to be perfectly honest with you, I've gotten that question a couple of times, and, and you would think that people would be very hesitant, but the thing is, why? What, what in our conversation would, would you need to know that, for what purpose would you need to know whether I identify as either or neither? Absolutely. That has nothing to do with the conversation whatsoever. And if um, you were to self-identify either way. I identify, and I identify she, her, and they, which really throws people off, <laughs> but deal with it. If you just address me as RC, you don't even have to worry about that, right? Yes, and I have loved ones in my life who definitely use they them pronouns and you know it is uh, it is it, and it is important um, to embrace uh, people's identity and whatever way that they self-identify 
The exactly. idea that we assign gender when folks are born doesn't mean those are people's gender. And, and we probably should stop that practice anyway, right? Like we should stop that practice that. to begin with, yeah. Um, so now we're talking about this intersectionality. We touched a little bit on this idea of gender. I personally have an issue with the term gender. If we have time, I'll rope back around to why that is. Um, but now how prevalent is domestic violence in the black community specifically? And I will definitely jump to your slides here. All right, great. Domestic violence stats for Black. Oh, this is a term I definitely wanted you to break down. Yes. And so this is domestic violence stats for Black cis-het women. And, you know, often people use just sort of shortened cisgender and heterosexual and just put them together. So Black cis-het women. And I think it's critical for me to be clear that this is data um, that is aimed at describing to me primarily those who would identify as um, cishet um, okay. in many different ways. And so, uh, or at least some of this data is, and, and, and or it's conflated, right? And or it's conflated right. in that we're not looking at gender, I mean, we're not looking at um, gender and we're not talking about sexual identity. Most importantly, we're not talking about sexual identity. And so I think that it becomes sort of blended. But right now, um, the 2010 National Intimate Partner Violence and Sexual Violence Survey says that 41.2% of Black women have been physically abused by a partner in their lifetimes. Um, and it also says that, um, well, you well, know what I, I realize? You had a pause there. I, I was actually going true. to say that is, that, that's huge. Well, and so then if you look at, I'm so sorry. 41.2%, that's, oh my gosh. And so if you look at the next um, data, which really is the same piece that really breaks it even further down and talks about experiencing rape, physical violence, and stalking by an intimate partner, um, it goes in for, to say that four out of 10. Um, so basically still consistent with that. So four out of 10 women of non-Hispanic, wow. Hispanic, Black um, identity uh, fall into that category. And then according to the Violence Policy Center in 2018, Black women were murdered at 2.8 times the rate. So this data, Violence Policy Center puts out their data once a year. Okay. Um, and, that, and that data is usually of two years before because it takes that amount of time to process the information to really understand the, you know, do the death review and that whole process and really understand. And so where they land it in 2000, the 2020 survey or report that came out in September says that in 2018, right. black women were murdered at 2.8 times the rate higher than mm. white women. Wow. Oh my goodness. And we know that, this, that there's so many more that people are probably have, you know, not found the bodies of and things of that nature. So if you just think about, oh my goodness, this is, that is frightening. It is frightening. Absolutely, it's frightening. And, and, and there are reasons for it. Um, you know, I don't, it, it does, from my perspective, it does not, fall within the category of us being 
of our communities being more violent than others. But I do think that, and, and I you know, do think that there are many cultural um, indicators and, 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 and lacks of, lack of access and so forth that, that would explain why we may stay longer, why the violence may be more le become more lethal over time before we're actually accessing support. And therefore, the lethality would be then higher. I think mm -hmm. that we're often more traditional in our relationships remaining longer, but most importantly, we often live in communities that have um, services deserts and really right. don't have the access to it or live in places in which services are saturated, right? And, and it's very challenging to get support and or we may not see ourselves in those services. And, you know, I have slides that speak to that, but overall um, that, that increases then our experiences of homicide. That doesn't mean that we're more violent. It just right. creates um, the, 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 the more lethal the situation becomes, we're more likely to be killed under those circumstances, yes. Now, who, do you have any um, information on who are the perpetrators? Who do those perpetrators look like? Because I'm assuming because of, um, I, my assumption would be because this is uh, domestic violence, that it's someone that you're in a relationship with. We're probably in relationship with people who are in our communities and who more than likely look like us. Well, from the Violence Policy Center and that particular piece of data, they're really speaking to folks who were wives or common law wives or ex-wives or girlfriends of the offenders. And generally, they're speaking about men in that circumstance. The actual report is called When Men Kill Women, right? And they're looking at data across communities. Um, but, but they always have one section that's specific to Black females. But the entire report really looks at and talked about what are the 10 states across the country that have the highest per, um, levels of of homicide and lethality, um, and that's across all communities. Okay. But, um, but we do have that one piece that's specific to Black women. And I do think that a lot of times these types of conversations are challenging for men to sit through because they feel like it's going to turn into a man bashing sex session or because women are the predominant um, victims. Um, that they don't know what to say. They feel very uncomfortable. And I, I want to make sure that, that men are engaged in this conversation as well. And so we are going to talk about what we all can do. This isn't just, we're giving this information so that people understand what's happening, um, but also so that we have tools so that we won't feel that we have to be in these situations. And so that the larger community can really rally around offering support and education to women and men. And for me, especially for young girls, um, I think it's important that they understand healthy relationships and that they have a strong sense of self so that they can be aware of situations that may feel uncomfortable. And they don't have to go all the way to being violent, but just in general, if we practice at a young age, being in healthy relationships and then practice getting out of unhealthy relationships sooner rather than later, I think that that can often buffer us from being in situations where we're blindsided later on in life. Um, so another well, question. Only in my um, let me see if there are any questions. I was just going to say in my Oh, go ahead. Do you have questions? 
Well, I was just going to say, in my circumstance, you know, you know, it was, I mean, I was in an unhealthy relationship, and that was something that I was becoming clearer and clearer about, just what that meant, just that there wasn't going to be this, this possibility of change, that there wasn't going to be someone who was actually seeking to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I did not expect, and you couldn't have paid me to believe, was that, that, that violence would have occurred, and then it did. And so... When you said earlier you didn't see it coming, I didn't see the violence coming. I did see, I did understand that I was in an unhealthy relationship. I did understand that. And I was addressing that, but, um, but there became a place where that was not going to change. And, and when I became clear on that, it wasn't long after that that violence occurred. Okay. Um, so another question I have is, um, how confident can we be in these statistics? I mean, a lot of times people say, well, oh, they're whatever, they're inflated, or it's underreported, or, you know, whatever things that people say, how, uh, how much can we trust this, these statistics? Um, you know, I think that, so the challenge with those statistics is that those statistics are generally, um, so first of all, domestic violence is still under, very underreported, right? And then the violence, and then the data is often coming from, um, from, uh, from those that are engaged or connected to the criminal justice system in some way, or somehow it is picked up within the system. But there are folks, and as we know, you know, many black folks are not calling the police, right? They're right. not reaching out, they're not asking for support. And so my sis, you know, my, we've always suspected, and that's across communities actually, the, sus, the uh, suspicion that and clarity that we were, we're just not picking up the data um, and, and folks are not, are not revealing. Mm-hmm. What's happening, and so I think that the data is full. You have numbers to look to. I think you can always assume that the numbers are much higher than what you're looking at. I, I'm I'm quite sure. I know that I, I'm a survivor of sexual assault, and I know that I didn't report that for a while. And people have different reasons for not reporting, and yeah. so. And, and they may eventually tell friends, but not necessarily report it to anyone um, that would then lead to the statistics that we got today. We do have a question here from someone. Um, Tanya made a comment about staying too long because of women, because often women feel like there is nowhere to go. Would you say we have failed women, not only by a lack of supportive services, but also by not talking about and encouraging people to ask? Yeah, you know, I think all of that, right? I think that I think that we are creating an environment where, um, where you know, where we encourage violence to remain private, right? And so, mm-hmm. you do encourage that, um, and you still have people who say, "Well, that's their own," you know, "that's that's right. their issue, that's in their home," um, and so folks are unwilling to really reach out. And I think that we do have family members and others who may not feel like they can um, that they can ask the question. Um, there are any number there are any number of reasons and i and i do think that also systems don't make it easy and i think particularly right now the understanding i mean the more and more we get in understanding how the criminal justice system mm-hmm. um, or injustice system is impacting our communities the less and less we're reaching out to those systems and quite frankly even when we do um calls that really couldn't could be handled without police Calls that could be handled by social services or by community members are actually then, you know, you have police officers who are ill-equipped, often ill-trained, often unaware, no matter how many years they've even received the training, often still not aware and still not very clear on how to handle 
things. And then most importantly, regardless of the training, we still often find ourselves um, becoming even a victim, you know, of, of the of the moment of the police showing up, mm, right? Revictimizing us, throwing us in jail for calling, throwing the person that's battering us in jail, or even brutality. And so it's it is it, it is not it's not a safe space. And so when yes, I think that there are any varying levels of of ways in which we fail survivors of um, domestic and sexual assault. Definitely. Now, um, what are some of the root causes of domestic violence in the Black community? I know that this is something that you speak on. Um, so I'm going to go to your slides here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so if you could, yes, um, go to the next slide. Um, so there's this tool that is used um, within the, um, within the, uh, domestic violence field that is called the power and control wheel that was developed by the um, domestic violence prevention center. I think it's called in um, Duluth, Minnesota, dozens of years ago. This wheel really speaks to these eight areas. And what I think, and what in my work that I've been doing is really being very clear that for black folks, um, particularly those that are descendants of or connected to or have um, or whose families have come through um, slavery, child slavery here in the United States um, and have really dealt with this extension of this household um, in which, you know, their families were. Um, so in other words, you have an owner and then you have them owning everyone on that in that in that on their um, in their household. Including their wife, including their kids, because of how marriage laws were at the time, and then including actual, you know, including black people, those who were enslaved. And so, within the enslavement experience, every piece of this power and control wheel, black people experience that within the slavery institution. And I think it is still something that is happening to our communities today, in which intimidation, emotional abuse, the use of children. You know, back then it was the the the, the threat of sale of children. Right. Back then it was the it was daily sexual assault for black women by, um, by, by uh, slave masters. You know, it was economic abuse. I mean, this, you know, these are people who were not earning. There were no earnings for them. Slavery was lifelong. And so really the idea that, and so the, 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 the ever prevalence, the constant prevalence of and presence of enslavement has created a background and a backdrop of this uh, within our families. And so if you go to the next slide. So I wanna speak specifically to black cis het women um, at the intersections of white supremacy, capitalism and patriarchy. You know, you really have sort of coming out of the slavery institution and that still sort of holds true for us today is this experience of trauma as normal and violence as normal, right? Mm -hmm. And that's normalized um, because of this history and the idea that, you know, black women should be able to take a hit, right? Take a punch. And so mm -hmm. we're often still in our relationships, black women as nurturers and having to, um, having to hold the, the nurturing table and, um, and really, you know, uh, and really taking on the needs and the concerns of everyone in their household 
Um, and this socialization, along with being the queen of resource, being able to make everything happen out of a, you know, out of one thing and being the keeper of spirit and, and forgiveness and all of these other pieces. And I'm not saying that forgiveness is not a part of it, but, but I think the consistent, um, you know, uh, you know, holding of a space in which violence is occurring um, is, is all related there and blended boundaries for us. Right. And so, and so. And then I think for I think for black cis het women, this idea that you know, a fear of never marrying because you know seventy percent of black women between the ages of 20, 20, 25 and twenty nine have never been married as compared to forty three percent of white women, um, and then many of us are also taught to stand by your man, but also with those kinds of statistics, very much do you know this idea of digging in and staying and standing right? Right. And in fact, it becomes revolutionary and historically for us you know, survival, even within the slavery institution was being in this relationship. If you had one and you could hold it um, for, for the period of time that you were able to hold it, that in and of itself was resistance, right? And so it's right. hard to break those, those barriers. And, I mean, those, those, those bonds. And then if you go to the next slide. And then there's just more, uh, go, yes. There's more with, you know, black men as target, um, you know, in public enemy number one and the fear of, you know, fear of us being able to call the police and also or calling for any sort of help um, because we really don't want to create this environment where people are seeing us or, or really this idea that, um, that uh, you know, that we are maligning our black, this black man in our home mm -hmm. and in our lives. And then I just think the last thing I will just say is that, you know, through male socialization that all folks go through, through sex, you know, that all gender, I mean, all communities go through, um, as well as, uh, you know, buying into the belief of male superiority and racism, historical trauma and economic disenfranchisement. These are just some of the reasons that reinforce um, violence in men who batter. So I know you and I had a conversation and we were talking about how to disrupt um, the system. So uh, these beliefs that people have held on for so long. And um, I know that it, it, it takes a very strong person to, to take on that call and that charge of disrupting. But um, what would it look like to disrupt and to um, it kind of shift people's views? on uh, a black man is supposed to be the head of household. He can do what he you know, wants to do in the house for women who may be of a generation that believes that um, if this man is providing for me. Now we think some of those views are gone, but I know some people who still do believe that. Or if a woman is in a situation where she is not able to take care of herself and, the, and her children at that moment, that might be a situation where she's not able to leave right then for very real reasons. Um, and so these, other people who are trying to disrupt the system and dismantle it while there are people who are live within the system and it, it is keeping them in a way. Well, you know, I, well, I think that some, I think that, so here's, you know, and I might be saying something that is controversial. <laughs> what I would say is, is that people can have their beliefs about what their, how sort of their, how their household and their relationships should look. I'm not trying to pass judgment on how that, how that may look. Mm -hmm. what, I am, what I am talking about, though, is the idea somehow that there should be penalties attached to 
um, any sort of thing that someone does that falls outside of that. Um, and so if or you decided that there will be a division of labor, there are things that I will do, there are things that you will do, um, and then there are certain ways in which we will engage each other. But the idea then that someone in the household then creates an unbalanced um, and creates a power dynamic in which, um, and have seized power or hold power in the home or in the relationship where there are then penalties attached to whether or not you meet up to their expectations of what that looks like, whether or not you follow through on the things that, 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 that you've agreed to. Um, and the idea that possibly there may not have been any agreement, that there may be some real imposition on what this looks like and what's going to happen. And there's so uncountless stories of women talking about, and particularly, um, you know, cishet women talking about how the dynamics of the relationship changed maybe once they got married or once they moved in together or right. once they, after they've been get together for three or four months, and then all of a sudden those shifting boundaries start to happen. And anything that's around surveillance and around um, stalking and around, um, and around, uh, you know, you know, trying to monitor and control what somebody's daily comings and goings are, and jealousy and other pieces, um, and even even kindnesses that are then related to that, um, that would be called kindnesses, but in truth are really just overtures to maintain power and control in the relationship. All of those things. Are, are the problem. And so when you talk about healthy relationships, to me, that is the, that's the core being, the whole core piece. Not everybody, not every person who's experiencing violence actually wants to leave their relationship. They really want the violence to end, right? right? And so, um, and also because many of them have, so they may stay under those circumstances. They may also stay because of a threat of the loss of life because the person there, you know, either their life or the person is threatening to kill themselves or threatening to kill the children or threatening to kill their, 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 their extended family. There right. are all, all sorts of reasons why people stay in relationships. But I think the last thing I would say that's related to what you're saying is we continue to have this dialogue as if the people who should be really addressing these issues are those who are experiencing the violence themselves. Why do they stay? Uh, when the real question is, is why do people engage in battering and violent behavior? And what can we do to hold accountability for those and hold folks accountable for the violence? Um, you know, we've been talking about black, black cis het people, but I really think if there's nothing else I want to say today is that this can happen across gender, that this can happen across sexual, uh, sexual orientation. It can and does. It does happen. Right. Um, and it's important for us to not see this only as, you know, cisgender heterosexual women involved with cisgender heterosexual men. This really does extend across um, identity. Um, I know I've heard from um, some people who may be of a slightly older generation, they're men, who say that the younger generation of queer um, female identified persons really are engaging in a lot of domestic violence. And I don't know if you have seen that in your work or know of any statistics around that, but I feel like some of um, those statements are made due to homosexual or due to um, just homophobia and heterosexism. 
So people assume that this is an other. These are people who are so different from me. So they behave differently than the people I identify with who may be straight, um, how they engage. Um, and I think one of the things that I kind of wanted to touch on with you are some misnomers. What are like two or three misnomers um, in regards to domestic violence? And maybe we can um, kind of bust those myths today. Well, one misnomer just off the bat that I've already said is that if 2.8, if black women are being killed at 2.8 times, is usually held around um, and, and that, and I said, those were wives, those were girlfriends, and that they were specifically, they were more aiming those, that language and that data towards black cishet women. Then mm -hmm. bottom line is, I don't, you know, LGBT communities are not, ang their experience of violence is not, is not, um, it, so what I would say is this, I would say that violence, the intimate partner violence is high across communities. Mm -hmm. I think, and I think that to, to make it seem as if any community with you know that any um, gender, that any gender or sexual orientation is happening, that somehow how do I say this? Because and the reason why I keep catching myself is because what I don't want to do though um, is diminish also um, high numbers that may be occurring within um, LGBT right. communities. Mm -hmm. I just want to say that I think that all the numbers are numbers we should be looking at. And so the mm -hmm. misnomer is that um, that we would be focusing on um, that we would be using. Um, any form of violence that is happening within LGBT community, LGBT community to, to further reinforce homophobia and heterosexism and transphobia. Mm -hmm. And I think that we should just be talking about violence uh, that, you know, intimate partner violence, period. 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 Right. Right. Because right. this is about power and control and power exactly. and control shows up. And frankly, I do think that power and control has happened against the backdrop of white supremacist, patriarchal capitalism, right? And so with that happening, then I think that I would say that male dominance actually still does um, set the tone for what that looks like in relationships. Right. And you know, not to cut you off there, um, but no, I was on um, a show with two gentlemen who basically felt that um, Black men did not, let me make sure I word this correctly <laughs> before they get me on Facebook after this, um, did not believe that they were part of the patriarchy. That they were not, um, and I, I didn't even understand their comment, but I guess how would you speak to men, black men saying, we have nothing to do with patriarchy. We, we are, in fact, I don't think they really understood the definition of patriarchy, which I wanted you to then define and then kind of speak to that, because I think that that statement was made a little bit out of ignorance, not truly understanding um, the systems and the interplay of the systems. Well, right. And that's why we have to look at uh, how multiple identities overlap, right? And so truth is, then we would really have to, you know, say then what they're speaking about is white male patriarchy and that's fine right. but that doesn't mean that that doesn't mean that black men aren't replicating or engaging in patriarchy within their homes within their relationships um, and that they are not um, in some ways centering maleness um, and centering um, you know uh, power and control dynamics within relationships and and are not um, engaging in unhealthy um, unhealthy gendered um, expression 
right? right. You know, I don't, toxic, you, you asked me about toxic masculinity. You know, I don't really like to use that phrase because I believe that um, toxicity, you know, the idea of toxic um, in some ways almost, uh, I think, I do think that black men get pinned with that more. I think men, mm -hmm. I think men of color get pinned with that toxic masculinity concept um, way more. Um, and I, you know, really, I don't, I don't sort of subscribe to that language because it labels a person toxic uh, rather than looking at their behaviors. Um, black men and men of color often bear the brunt, brunt of this. And it lets men and masculine people, and I keep saying men and masculine because, you know, we're not, we're, you know, you can be a person who's masculine identified, right? right. And you don't have to be sort of cis, a cis man in right. order to be that. But, but, but subscribing to, you know, it, it, it lets those people who engage in things that wouldn't be considered toxic or within that sort of extreme concept um, off the hook. But things like mm. talking over women, that's... Microaggressions. The microaggressions of the everyday, the, right. the, 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 you know, and, and the microaggressions that just keep these systems in place. Exactly, that keep exactly. Men, that keep men and masculine people speaking over and talking over women and femmes, right? That really creates a power dynamic that says that I own you and I can own you um, and, and that I can have power over you. Um, but to do that in a way that isn't, um, that isn't blatant um, and that can be, um, stealth, right? And so I think that that, that creates this real um, under, misunderstanding. Okay. Um, and I think, so that's why I don't use that phrase. But okay. men across identity are engaging in these dynamics all the time. Okay, okay. So I don't want people to think that we are only uh, believing that all men are the only perpetrators. Of course, there are um, all genders have the ability to abuse others. I think that the reason this conversation has been um, kind of centered around those who identify or male identifying persons being the um, perpetrators against female identifying persons is because the statistics are more overwhelming in that direction. So just so everybody understands that that's just the um, majority, but we're not suggesting in any way, shape or form that um, to female identifying persons, to non-binary persons could not, um, participate in um, abusive relationships. Um, before we close out, I do want to say, what are some um, resources for individuals who are currently in an abusive relationship and are trying to find their way out? Um, well, they uh, could call uh, their, uh, um, the National Domestic Violence Hotline. I'll have um, that number on my page. Okay. Fantastic. So they can look on your page for that number. Uh, they also can reach out to their local domestic violence um, hotline. And the thing is, is that you can call and not actually have to give your identity at all. You don't have to give a name. You can just call and talk. Um, remain anonymous, but get whatever you need. Um, I want to also encourage people who are, who have, um, who know someone that they're concerned about, they can do the same. They can do the same thing. They can call, get support, get resources, um, and, and then offer and share that, but do it in a way that if the person doesn't take the materials with them, it may not be safe for them to take that information back. So you may have to be the holder and you may have to keep holding it and you may have to um, offer that over, you know, over a period of time. People don't, 
don't, um, you know, if a person is headed in a pathway towards leaving, it often takes, you know, they say it takes four to seven times for the person to actually leave. And we should always be there for our, for, for, for those, for our loved ones and those we care about, no matter how often it takes right. to go through this, as we've already talked about, it is a maze. It is, it's a real maze to mm-hmm. really figure out what's going to be the best case scenario. And if someone is in fact attempting to leave, it is not the easiest pathway. Right. Thank you so much. For those who are watching, um, we have been talking today. I have been talking today with Tanya Lovelace. Um, We had a very informative educational session about um, the intersection of race, um, domestic violence, violence in general in our communities, as well as um, gender. And we have some resources. I will put those resources on my page. If anyone out there is currently in a situation that is unhealthy and that they believe is leading to or is currently in a violent relationship, please reach out to the domestic violence hotline. You do not have to leave your name. They will not trace you and call you back. They will not put you in any danger, but they are there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, just to listen. If you just need to call that number and cry on the phone, they are there. Please do not hesitate to reach out for the resource. I will be having more guests on for the rest of this month. I want people to know that it's not your fault and you can get out and it may take time, but there are supportive services available to you. Thank you again, Tanya Lovelace, for joining me today. And I really hope that we keep in touch and maybe we um, come back around during April and have Enina J join us. That would be awesome. Oh my gosh, that would be amazing. Yes. Yes. Looking forward to that. Definitely. Thank you all for watching. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. This episode has been brought to you by Fit Life Give, a black owned, queer, and trans friendly luxury mobile spa. Fit Life Give specializes in couples and individual massage, from corporate events to spa and pamper parties all across the Chicagoland area. Massage is a form of fitness, and you need to have a fit filled life in order to give to others. So book Fit Life Give for your next event or personal service. That's fitlifegive.biz.